Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul. Thanks for stopping by. My guest this week is Daniel Carcillo. Daniel is a former professional hockey player who played 12 seasons in the NHL, during which time he was known as an enforcer, so tough and volatile that he earned the nickname Carbomb. Get it? Carcillo? Carbomb? It's a good nickname, actually. Daniel was a member of two Stanley Cup winning teams, the 2013 and 2015 Chicago Blackhawks. He had the distinction of leading the league in penalty minutes and was fined or suspended by the NHL 12 times. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're probably thinking, wow, this guy sounds like a like a thug. He's actually a very intelligent, thoughtful person. He's a family-oriented guy. But when he strapped on the skates, as you'll hear him explain, it was uh, it was on. And he was out there to win. He was out there to protect his teammates. And he had everything in the game. Unfortunately, the game took a toll on him. And the work he's been doing since his career is the reason I really wanted to talk to him. Daniel suffered over the course of his hockey career something like a dozen concussions. And as he told me, I know I have CTE in reference to the progressive and fatal brain disease that he believes drove him to the brink of suicide until, as he describes it, mushroom therapy saved his life. Yes, mushrooms, magic mushrooms, psilocybin. Today, Daniel is a brain health advocate and the founder, CEO of Wisana Health, a life sciences company that leverages psilocybin-based medicine treatments for traumatic injuries. In this episode, Daniel and I discuss Canada's hockey culture, whether winning the Stanley Cup made him happy, the culture of violence in the NHL, the epidemic of brain injury among athletes, and how psilocybin mushrooms, MDMA, ketamine, and other non-traditional medicines are being used to treat depression, PTSD, and brain disease. Please note, my dear listeners, I neither endorse nor disapprove of Daniel's point of view here. I don't know the science, but I think there's a lot to learn in this space that could potentially benefit a lot of people who are suffering, whether that's veterans with PTSD, people with very serious brain injuries, people with addiction problems, et cetera, et cetera. So keep an open mind, but I think you'll enjoy Daniel's story and hopefully it'll make you think. This is Daniel Carcillo. So it's like right in between Miami and Orlando, Okay, like an hour and a half south of, of Orlando. How long have you been down there? I would say almost two years. It'll be two years in December. You lived in Phoenix, Chicago, where else? Yeah, uh, Phoenix, Chicago, started my career in Phoenix, got drafted to Pittsburgh, traded to Phoenix, then I went to the Flyers, and then I went to, where did I go to after the Flyers? I think it was the Blackhawks. And then I went to, had a cup of tea with the LA Kings, a <laughs> uh, cup of tea with New York Rangers, and then back to Chicago. You grew up in uh, suburban Toronto? Yeah. Yeah. So King City is a little farming town, about 5,000 people. And you started playing hockey as soon as you could walk? Is that basically uh, it? Right out of the womb, man. Yeah. You get born with skates in Canada, for sure. Four years old, as soon as you could walk, then you're right on skates. Were you good from the get-go? I would say that I was definitely attracted to the sport, more so to the fact that you could you could hit people and separate them from the puck and really test somebody's fortitude. That for me early on was something that I was that I was really really attracted to. You could do that in youth hockey? Yeah, we started hitting at yeah, three, four years no, old. Man. Seriously, you did? Oh yeah, dude. Yeah, man. <laughs> That's why there's so many of us now that like are number one, we're passing away. People are passing on. 
and their brains are being donated and you're finding CT, this neurodegenerative disease that's very similar to ALS and Parkinson's, Mm -hmm. stage three, stage four. And some guys don't necessarily have a history of concussion, but we were hitting like we were hitting since we were three or four. So, you know, you're getting 10 hits a game, hundreds hundreds, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of hits. Over the years. I want to come back Mm -hmm. to that, but I want to know more about you. So were you an aggressive kid? Was the guy you were on the ice the same guy you were off the ice? No, completely different. Completely different. So the guy that I was on the ice, I was able to always kind of joke about how hockey is like the best anger management tool. And so I was very (laughs) like, I was a dork growing up. I loved school. I loved English. I loved, I guess from an early age, looking back on it, like communicating a message in our household, you just had to be really good at everything. If your school wasn't top notch, then you weren't doing sports and sports was a privilege, but no, off the ice, I'm like super, super calm, very sensitive, a little bit of an empath and pretty much the exact opposite of the persona I played on the ice. What happens when you strap on the skates? Uh, It's war, you know, it's me or you. If you mess around with the guys that I've been working so hard to do the thing that we're set out to do, which is win, then, you know, you're going to feel it. I'm going to try to make you quit. And to me, hockey was much more about just scoring goals. Now, today you look at the game, it's good that it's moved that way to like scoring and and skill. But at the end of the day, man, you get into a seven game series with a team, you have to impose your will. You have to break them down. Even if it's six to one, you know, you're losing the game. Well, a hit could possibly take out their best player, which could be the difference in a series or it could hurt him a little bit. You know, and then he's, then he's weakened. So all of these things factor in. And I just, yeah, really enjoyed that kind of, mental warfare of that pucks in the corner who's who's going to come out with it what was your family like do you have brothers and sisters yeah i was the middle so the troubled middle kid two brothers one older one younger paul and and steve we grew up in an italian household very very strict carved out certain things uh, in my behavior that i could see now uh, which i kind of took onto the onto the ice but i was very like protective of my teammates of my brothers of my family it was kind of i guess growing up just always had a very clear view of what I wanted to do, mm-hmm. very set in my ways. And um, I became a parent to the whole family eventually when I moved away at 15. How's that? Because you were making an income? Yeah, I was making an income. And I felt like, I guess at some point, everybody just became very invested in in this thing that I could achieve. And I felt a lot of pressure to be able to do that. And I also... You grow up fast. You grow up really, really fast in hockey. It's a very hard sport. You're going to suffer. And you move away at at 15 years old. You know, I was drafted to the NHL when I was walking the halls of of the high school as a senior. I was in grade 12. And then I turned pro, you know, against guys that are 40 or or 50 years old with three kids in the room, et cetera. So, (laughs) yeah, everybody was kind of looking. And I was, I'm okay with that. I was always a bit of a, a born leader. So you're kind of the guy in your hometown and people look up to you and they're like, oh, he's going to go play in the big leagues. I'm one of them. You know, Canada's different, right? If you go there to play men's league, like your your head's spinning because everybody can play. So I was one. Uh, Jeff O'Neill was actually a guy that came out of King City. So I was the second. Well, actually, I was the third. Rick Hampton, Jeff O'Neill, Daniel Carcillo, Alex Petrangelo. 
So there were four of us that came out of this small town. Wow. When did you become the enforcer? At what point were you identified as the guy that that stands up for the for the other guys on the team? So in junior, I scored 30 goals a year and and yeah, I got a lot of penalty minutes, et cetera. And I put my, I, I hit people like really hard and I kind of realized I was only 160 pounds. I'm like, man, you know, if you go to pro, there were guys in junior, luckily that fought, but these guys are going to want a piece of me because the game is, is very like honorable in that way where it's like, and it's also weird in that way where it's like you make a legal hit and you put a guy down, like they're going to come, they're just going to come and they're going to stand up for their guy. And you have two choices. You can either turtle or or you know let these guys have an opportunity and then and i would stand up i would obviously let them try you know and and most of the time it ended up with a couple guys hurt but it's a part of the game we explain that so this is a you know most of my listeners are in the southeastern united states so in atlanta we haven't had hockey well we had the thrashers but i grew up with the flames and they went to calgary you know all those years ago so we're not as well versed in hockey like explain that role that why does the enforcer have to exist so I don't think he has to exist, but it's always nice to have an individual on your bench. I was very unpredictable. So meaning if there's a guy on the other side, on the other team, right, that I knew that if I took a liberty on one of their players, I would have to fight this man. Like he was going to come after me. And if I didn't fight him, then he was going to come after Patrick Kane, Jonathan Taves, and then I would inherently look really bad. I wasn't doing my job. And it's one of the roles that existed from early on. You used to have these heavyweight roles where at the beginning of games, guys would just throw their gloves down and start pounding each other for no reason <laughs> other than to get the fans in. Like it. in Slapshot, like in the movie Slapshot. Exactly. <laughs> and it was like this meaningless, I never really understood that part of it. like Because nobody at the end of the day really likes fighting. You know, like you can do it and guys are good at it. So I never really got it. And so what I used to do to guys, if they wanted to fight me, well, they had to earn it. So that meant that they had to go and make a good hit on somebody or do something to get me to go. It works both ways, you know. And so you're a band of brothers. And if somebody goes down, somebody's stepping up to it's, it's just more of like a just a pride thing just to, you know, honor that guy. So that's why the role existed for so long. It's getting rooted out, but there's still some guys in the league now that, you know, and if you don't have that guy, then it's so easy for me to just go around and do whatever the hell I want all night. And then the guys that are going to step up, I'm going to beat them up anyway. And so, and then, you know, you got 21 guys on the bench looking at this and, it doesn't bode well for you trying to win a hockey game. It's just, it's not going to happen. All right. So hockey is already a very violent sport in terms of contact and checking and heads going into the boards and everything. But as a fighter, you're taking even more blows to the head. And in your career, how many fights did you get into? Uh, 164. Okay. So you led the, several times you led the league in penalty minutes. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I wanted to kind of make a name for myself. You know, when you, when you get into the league, you got to put your, put your stamp you on were it. fined or suspended by the nhl 12 times you were see that's the unpredictability part that i was telling you about <laughs> i would fight but i would also you couldn't put it past me cross-checking someone in the face if somebody did something bad i would i would one up most of my teams paid my fines so i had i had free reign yeah and you earned the nickname car bomb carcillo mm-hmm. the car bomb mm-hmm. good nickname yeah. i like that nickname <laughs> 
Solid nickname. You know, I work with, <laughs> I work a lot in like the veteran community now. And it's yeah. like, you know, I don't know if I, a couple of people have asked me like, you know, you should change it. And, stuff. and I'm like, I, that was me for some time. Sure. And I'm like really proud of, of the guy that I was, you know? So. And you played for how many years total? Uh, 12 professionally. And you won two yeah. Stanley cups, two Stanley cups. Yeah. With the Hawks. Did that make you happy? And if so, um, for how long? So in 2013, I was, I was single. I didn't have, you know, my wife or my kids or anything. And I just, and you do the thing, you know, you do the thing, you try to, you try to win, you try to, that is the culmination of, and again, like this sport is so hard, so hard to do. And there's so much pain and it's, there's a lot of repetition and, you know, you get five, six years in, it actually feels like a job. So it starts sucking a lot more, but being on that Blackhawks team with all the guys, like this core group of dudes that can just, it didn't matter who came into the lineup. There was always this core focus and and that never wavered. So it was really easy to win, you know, when everybody was on the same page. So that was really cool to be a part of. Uh, it was really great to be, to know that you are by far and beyond the best fucking hockey team in the world. And you can crush anybody. I mean, who doesn't want to feel that? And then the city of Chicago is behind you, which is an original six team. So there's a ton of passion People are super appreciative of it. You know, I had this weird relationships with, with hockey for quite some time. Uh, one person put it to me, like, just think about how much happiness you brought people mm. like into their lives. And I think about it all the time because I was like, well, why do people like, why do we get all this free shit? And why do we <laughs> skip lines? Why do musicians want to hang out? Why do we get, why, why, why? I didn't understand it until I got on the other side into the real world where it's like, man, we did something, number one, that most people wouldn't wouldn't even dream of doing for a week and guys like me would do it 10 15 years like drinking a glass of milk and so we brought a lot of happiness to what is a really monotonous world this is a really boring world out here for me you know it really is and so i understand now these things that give people this excitement and this enjoyment of this break from the work from the stress from the marriage from the thing totally I'm like, this is it. This is great. So now I'm like, damn, you know, I made a lot of people happy. So I'm, I'm, I'm really fucking proud of that. You mentioned pain. You got bumps, you got bruises, you got, you got concussions. How'd you deal with the pain? Oof. Uh, so I was drinking a lot early in my career. You know, I was just self-medicating. I was smoking a ton of marijuana I would use painkillers, muscle relaxers, anything the doctors gave me, Ambien to get to bed, Red Bull, uh, Sudafeds to get up before the games. And, you know, I got myself into a bit of a pickle when I was 25. I was about five years into my career. I had all the injuries that I could list for you now. And the one thing that I didn't have was, was an understanding of like who I was, like just who I am personally, and then reconciling some of the things that happened in my childhood and also with the hazing and the abuse that that does happen in hockey. And so for the first time, uh, I had two surgeries back to back. So I had my abdomen stapled back to my pelvis. There was a huge tear. And then I had an orthoscopic hip surgery 10 days later. And then I had these, these hydrocodone, oxycodone, um, pure synthetic heroin prescribed to me. And I I like, that's how I dealt with the pain for a good, like six or seven months. And, wow. but I also knew immediately, I'm like, man, this is a problem. Cause I lost about 20 pounds and I wasn't working out. And so then I asked for help when I was 25 and, um, I received the help, 
you know, I wanted it. I was ready to wake up. And then I started doing things like breath work and meditation and hyperbaric chambers and float tanks or self-deprivation tanks. And I had these things in my house. I would be spending my money on these recovery tools that were holistic and healing and natural. And that was just like completely changed my life. I didn't know that you could do that. And so I started managing the pain more consciously rather than unconsciously with the, with the prescriptions and all that other, like, it's just, it's bullshit. It, it's a bandaid. And so after that, dude, I didn't get hurt for five years. I went to the Stanley Cup finals four times with three different teams in those last five years. Everything happened for me that was good in those last five years when I started managing my mental game and, and just got, got a little bit more familiar with who, who Daniel is, you know, away from hockey. So, but there is a lot of pain and it's really difficult to not take the cortisol shots, to not take the Ambien, to not have the muscle relaxers, to not have the Ambien. Cause that's, that's the easy thing to do. And it's just so readily available. They want you to take it, right? They want you. Yeah. I mean, and you think, and at that time I did too. And rightfully so, this is a $4 billion a year league. And we, we are partnered with Northwestern, the best hospital in Chicago. Why wouldn't this guy have my best interest in mind? And I don't think that it, it's what they know, man. They've read this stuff in a book. You know, I talk to people about psychedelic therapy. You're like, you're not going to get this information from anybody because it's not in the literature. It's mm -hmm. not in the book that the doctor read and that the doctor prescribes from. So I just, you know, making sure that people understand that. And then, um, no ill will, man. It's like, oh, God, I'm so grateful that they did all of that. Then I woke up. You know, I woke up after having the side effects and the seizures and, and coming off of those pharmaceuticals. It was really difficult. And so you eventually retire. You're going full speed in the NHL for many years, and then you just got to go be Daniel. What was that like? <laughs> yeah, I mean, like I said, thank God I was kind of... Uh, um, myself and, you know, Steve Monitor, my friend who passed away, he was one of them that had CT. We just started like really delving into books and, you know, a little bit more of like Eastern medicine and, and perspective uh, ways that we see the world and then how we can shift that. You know, and some of these tools, you can shift it with some of these psychedelic medicines. And my life was shaken. I've always wanted to be a dad. So in my last year in the NHL, in 2014, November, my son Austin Wolf was born, which was an amazing day. And then Steve passed away in February, a couple months later. And then I got my seventh concussion in March of that same year. And then we won my second Stanley Cup. And like all these things were happening. And then my grandfather ended up passing away. There was a lot of like birth and death. And I just had to, I knew that I had to stop just because of the symptoms that I was having. And it was just a nice breath to kind of, I knew that I didn't want anything to do with hockey necessarily. It was kind of torn. And I blamed it a lot for kind of those symptoms that I was suffering from and, and not being able to spend time with my kid. And I had this very bad victim mindset for like four years where I wanted to tear the whole thing down. And then I became, as I was doing this, I was going to CT brain banks and, and concussion doctors and taking the pharmaceuticals that the white coats were prescribing and starting to do float tanks and hyperbaric and trying to figure out what made me feel good. And uh, four and a half years in, luckily I got, I got very suicidal because I thought that I'd 
tried all of these treatments and I thought I had no more hope. And then I took an invitation to, um, to a farm in Denver, which was a decriminalized city at the time for psilocybin. Psilocybin is an active ingredient in magic mushrooms. The FDA has designated it breakthrough therapy designation for two different companies already. There's a company in phase two right now through the FDA with a synthetic version that, that is helping to treat treatment resistant depression. This molecule, <laughs> these fungi have been around for well over 5,000, 10,000 years. Indigenous tribes across the world use it um, for, for spiritual growth and healing. So I felt somewhat comfortable to be able to try it and it saved my life. It absolutely saved my life. It it helped my brain get back online. We can go into all the science and stuff, but I'll give you the Coles notes. And spiritually, it showed me. It's like, hey, in not so many words, this was this was the summary from three hours um, of hallucinations. It was you are creating your own heaven and hell. You can stay in this hell that you've created by highlighting the negative. That is never going to change. The NHL will always be a league and pro leagues will always be leagues of liability and people will get sick. My only hope is that you just tell the kids early on that, hey, man, you you know, this is the risk. This is the real risk. And then you have to go over here and you have to start building. You have to start showing people that you're healthy. You have to start living your life with your beautiful family, your four kids, and you have to start creating. That's always going to be there. And as soon as I did that, Man, my life's been my life's been phenomenal for the last five years. Hey, everybody, we'll be right back with Daniel in just a second. But I want to ask you to do me a favor. Would you do me a favor? Yeah, please. Okay, go to the episode notes. That is the description of this episode. That is under where you're playing it. You'll see the NHL brain injury and psilocybin. Yeah, below that, scroll down, and you'll see Daniel's bio, a little bit more about him, and then some bullets as to what we're going to talk about. And then below that, you'll see a link that says check out Daniel's Instagram which you should do. But also below that is rate and review crazy money here. Please take a second to offer your feedback on the podcast. Give me five stars if you feel so inclined. That helps small independent podcasts like mine be more discoverable to people who might want to listen to it. It also gives them the incentive to sample it because they go, oh, hey, these other smart, attractive people who are like me uh, like this podcast. Well, maybe I should check it out too. While you're down there, you might as well go ahead and click the link to subscribe to my Substack. It's called Money and the Meaning of Life. It's a bi-weekly blog. Yes, blog, if you're over 40. These are 800 to 1,000 word essays about money, happiness, and assorted things that piss me off. Just stuff that's on my mind. I think if you like this podcast, you'll like a lot of what I write about. Maybe some of it will piss you off. Uh, People do unsubscribe from time to time. It is a free subscription. If you want, while you're in there, you can become a premium subscriber. That helps subsidize the significant production costs for crazy money. If you do that, you'll get a crazy money pint glass, maybe even a t-shirt. And so uh, there's bonuses in it for you if you want to do that, but you don't have to. Just you liking and sharing my writing and my recordings of the podcast are very meaningful to me. So thanks for checking it out. All right, back to Daniel Garcello. Will you talk about the relationship between concussions, CTE, and neuroplasticity? Yeah. So essentially, you smack your head, your brain moves. It's sitting in this in this sack of fluid. If the smack is hard enough, then it can cause damage to one of the six areas on the, in the brain, and they all do different things. So a concussion isn't on the whole brain. Typically, where we're finding the neurodegenerative disease is, is in the frontal lobes because a lot of 
football players lead with the head. Hockey players, we lead with the head. Even soccer players heading the ball, right? Absolutely. They're actually three and a half times more susceptible to dementia than we are just because of that repetitive. And again, those aren't concussive events. Those are these repetitive, small hits to the head that still cause neuronal damage. Once neurons die, they secrete chemicals that kill other neurons, right? So how do we, number one, protect the brain? Because there are these neuroprotectants, and they're actually patented by the U.S. government, and it was patented back in 1999, and it's something as simple as CBD, a cannabinoid extract. And it was patented against neuronal death with ALS, Parkinson's, and, and Alzheimer's. So if that's the case, everybody should be on CBD for anti-aging because cells die even without getting hit in the head. If you're playing contact sports, you should definitely have that in your body as a protective measure. But so we get these hits, concussive or subconcussive, and they lead to these, these neuronal deaths. They lead to areas of our brain being shut down due to trauma. And then when we, when we stop the sport, either due to our, on our own volition or because we're injured, and you get into this world that's much slower, you start to realize how sick you are. You start to feel these impulse control issues that you cannot control. You're angry. You're frustrated. You're self-medicating with alcohol. You're not sleeping. You're using things to sleep. So you start doing all of these things that aren't necessarily normal. Your loved one notices it. You know, the stress starts to compound. And you have to find tools that can help wake the brain up. And so that's everything that I learned at these concussion stroke rehabilitation centers, right? They would give me all these diagnostics, ocular, vestibular, balance fluid, where we feel we are in space, memory tasks, obviously, QEGs, reading the electrical waves of these six different areas in my brain and how they're communicating to pinpoint one that's shut down. And then they say, well, I'm going to now give you exercises to wake this part of the brain up. Mm. That's why I knew psilocybin could work because I saw a study in 2017 of two brains under fMRI. And you might have seen it too. It's um, placebo brain and a psilocybin brain. And there are all these neural networks communicating right, right and left, back and forth. Placebo, eh, somewhat lit up. This brain on psilocybin, massively lit up because it shuts down air, an area in our brain called the default mode network. And then it allows for this communication, over communication of these other brain hemispheres. When I saw that, I was like, whoa, that could work for me because I was just correlating it back to what the doctors were saying. Right. And then I went and tried it and I woke up the next day and I could delve into the science, but we'll keep it a high level. And I just felt more like myself, just a little bit. And then the next day, uh, you know, I called my wife, no slurred speech, totally gone. And I had it bad. And then I walked outside. I forgot my glasses. Usually that would trigger a headache. And I ran back inside and I'm like waiting for this headache to come. No headache. I slept like a baby for two weeks like on that farm, all of these things started to lessen in intensity or all but fade away in a very short period of time. Because this is so heavily stigmatized, I did diagnostics before I left and after I left. And I proved it out in six months and started a company and we communicated with the FDA. We, we did um, a pre-IND meeting for a new drug application. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty heavily involved because the concussion community has nothing right now. No FDA approved medication for anybody to get better. Now, let's talk about the stigma very frankly, right? Because I know a lot of people hearing this are going to go, oh, you're taking mushrooms, you're tripping, that's just, you're a druggie. And yet we could take Zoloft, Xanax, all these other things that are 
equally as powerful, but don't have the same kind of stigma. You mean the approved methamphetamines that doctors prescribe <laughs> five and six-year-olds? Those things? Yeah. Those things. Yeah. Mm. Well, I mean, yeah, that's what it is. So like, you know, certainly over the last few years, there's been lots and lots more conversation about psychedelics being used for for mental health reasons. Mm-hmm. So, but let's just talk about it very specifically. Like you're not taking these drugs to get high, right? You're taking these drugs to to remedy a very serious brain condition that, that you've developed over the course of your life. Yeah, intention, you know, like anything that I put in my body, I'm intending to use it a certain way and I think about it. So there's set and there's setting. A set intention for my psilocybin journey was to recover my brain health and that was it. And it was very strong because I'd been working towards that for four and a half years and I was at the end of my rope. I was very dark, but I really wanted that. You know, psilocybin has a a way of exasperating what's at the forefront of our mind. And for me, that's why it took me through this very difficult hallucination of of you're creating a really bad world and you need to change that or Mm -hmm. else you're just going to live in this world. It's up to you now. That's the beautiful thing about this medicine is it shows you what could be wrong, but then I have to come back into this body and I have to do it. I have to change. I have to take those lessons and apply them to my life or else, yes, you are just doing drugs in my opinion, but at least you're doing drugs that enhance the brain. You're not doing methamphetamines. These are not things that are made in a lab. These are not patented by big pharma because they can't be because they're found in nature and they've got a history of use tens of thousands of years for very specific reasons, you know, to go hunting because it hones in visual and auditory acuity. And, and also the shaman will come into the tribe if there's sickness, depression, anxiety, whatever you want to call it. That's what our society calls it so that they can then prescribe you these medicines. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but what I am is an information junkie. I have four kids under the age of eight. Right now, like we're going through these lists of vaccines that seem completely erroneous, you know, because we're asking questions because everybody is now because that's what you have to do. And also like my kids, they work out, they go in cold tubs if they feel a little itchy they feel anxious. We don't call it anxiety. It's okay to feel anxious, but I have tools for them to use to not feel that way. And it's not medication, you know? So the way that I think about contextualizing stigma, I, on some level, I don't really care because that's their perception. Yeah. You know, it's not mine. And I didn't really have to, I saw the science and stuff. So the way that I view this now, it's like, when I talk to people, I don't tell them it's mushrooms. I'm like, mm. do you want something that can enhance your brain? That's a really good neuro anti-inflammatory that'll help you sleep. That'll help you make better choices when you're going for food. That'll help you drink less. That'll mm. help you not be hungover because mm-hmm. you don't need to be a saint. You can have fun on it recreationally too. Mm-hmm. You know, Do you want something like that? And it helps you feel more connected to you and the people around you and helps you look into people's eyes when you talk to them and it helps you be more creative and, and a better uh, husband and also a better businessman. And I'm like, damn, yeah, what is that? And and then I say, it's, it's psilocybin, it's magic mushrooms. Then you see the stigma come in. Okay, but you don't recommend that I go wander into a cow field and try to pick my own mushrooms and, and no. try to figure out the appropriate dose for myself. So how does somebody Absolutely say, not. hey, this sounds like something that I could benefit from. How do I do this responsibly in a way that, that actually will help me out? So I would go to uh, clinicaltrials.gov 
and see if there's any clinical trials that you could that you could sign up for. I would also go to there's a lot of great information out there. Uh, go check out Maps. They do a really good job of breaking everything down. Sorry, Maps. What is that? They're an organization that that does education. They are a nonprofit that is about to submit an NDA using MDMA for PTSD. Mm-hmm. So a lot of veterans MDMA sexually- known as ecstasy. Or, or Molly in for the younger kids. Correct, yeah. But it's pure, pure MDMA. It's a little so bit it's different. It's not cut with a bunch of junk. <laughs> no, exactly. It's pharmaceutical grade. It's the stuff that they were using in the 40s, 50s, 60s before the war on drugs with Nixon. Mm-hmm. And they have a 71% success rate with PTSD survivors, curing them of PTSD. So this is not a Band-Aid. This is not a medication that they need to be on for the rest of the life. The only thing that they have to continually do is do the psychotherapy associated with it. So that means that person work. becomes a more productive individual in the economy, a more responsible parent, brother, sister, Absolutely. father, and they're at, at a far lower risk for self-harm. Absolutely. I think the biggest war, and it's happening now, doesn't matter what you think about Russia or these other countries, but the biggest war is human capital. If you look on social media, et cetera, it looks like the U.S. is losing um, food, mental health, GMOs, all of the things that could make us sick, we just have to look at. And if we could use these medicines to put these really high operating people like veterans back into society, you know, that's what we're doing here with these psychedelic medicines. These are not band-aids and big pharma. It's a very big reason why they're not, you know, developing them. And then we need to be very careful of who we sell these programs to, because these are not things that are going to make people a lot of money. Right. You know, so which is great for the human beings, but not great for for the uh, for the big wheel. So I think I cut you off, though. You were saying when you were explaining the programs that maps and mm-hmm. the PTSD. So go look towards. To, yeah. Maps. Please finish that thought. Yeah, absolutely. Maps. Uh, healing maps is great. So healing maps actually lists out. Think of weed maps. All of the clinics, ketamine clinics. Uh, mm. that are in the U.S. right now. So ketamine is also FDA, well, the first uh, FDA-approved psychedelic-like medicine. What does ketamine do? I've heard of ketamine, I've never done it, and I don't know I don't know what it does. Yeah, so it's approved through Johnson & Johnson. It's called S-ketamine. It's an intranasal spray, so it helps uh, really well with um, depression. Uh, mm-hmm. People are using it in off-label uses for anxiety. It's a disassociative so with psilocybin, me and you could talk through a ceremony. Mm-hmm. With ketamine, you're more so in your body. So you disassociate with your body. And if you have the right intention in the right setting, then you can go deeply into your trauma, into the things that are ailing you, into a problem that you want to solve. And it's a little bit more of a, a regular use case, but it works It works amazingly well for, for a, a large number of indications. So... That's in clinics right now. Healing Maps has those. They also have retreats listed in you know Jamaica, Costa Rica, et cetera. Uh, they could probably connect you to good facilitators. And then I'll, the last thing I'll say is Oregon is open for business right now. So Measure 109 is a measure that created an adult therapeutic use for psilocybin, very similar to cannabis. Uh, so there are licensed service centers. There are licensed facilitators who will sit with you. You want to find a sitter. You don't want to go out and do this medicine on your own. You want to prepare with this person, and then you want to integrate with them after. If you prepare with them, then they're able to help guide you through what could be a challenging experience. They understand Mm -hmm. your trauma Mm -hmm. and you. 
And then there's licensed manufacturers that make the mushrooms. And we're talking about full spectrum. So this is the number one thing that I recommend because full spectrum is far superior than any synthetic that will ever go through the FDA. As opposed to just isolating the psilocybin? Absolutely. Yep. So through the FDA and that process that I learned, we have to make your medicine within a 0.01% variance for millions of people. So that's why there's never, ever been a full spectrum medicine approved through the FDA. So, and then there's um, licensed uh, testing facilities. So they'll test the mushrooms. So there's, there's a framework here that people can go because a lot of people don't want to buy psilocybin mushrooms on the black market, which, which you shouldn't. So you can go to these programs, you can go to these retreats, you can go to these FDA approved clinics, and you can partake in this medicine work uh, that way as well. Tell me about the work you're doing at WeSana. Yeah. So, well, we sauna was everything. So when I got better, I wanted to understand how I can get this to, to millions of people. And so I started in Decriminalized Nature. I don't know if you've ever heard of them, Paul, but they're, um, they're an organization that was set up to basically show people how to grow, gather, and gift their medicine. Because a lot of these cities now are decriminalized. So if you're gifting medicine and you're not selling it, then you won't you won't be prosecuted if, say, a police officer pulls you over and arrests you. You probably still will get arrested, et cetera. And once it gets to the DA's office, they just say, we're not putting funds towards prosecuting this anymore. So, And that's a really great tool because I believe people should have access to their own consciousness. But when I was thinking about, you know, I started off supporting there. We got Initiative 81 passed in Washington, D.C. I was like, well, man, when I was suffering there was no way that I was going to take all these steps and, and like grow my own medicine. I just couldn't. So then I looked at through the FDA process, although synthetic, far less superior than full spectrum, I thought people need a medication. And this is so much better than the Wellbutrin or the Zoloft or the Xanax or the Adderall or, or the Ambien and those things. So I put together a drug development team and we raised some money and, and we initiated, that's what I worked on for the last three and a half years. Uh, we recently sold the drug development asset to a NASDAQ listed company uh, and we sold off the clinic. So that's winding down. And now my big focus, because we owned and operated ketamine clinics, um, which were psychiatrist led. So they were doing med management um, and, and a lot of other things like TMS. There's no infrastructure for this experiential medicine. So when you go to a doctor, he will give you questions and he will deem whether you have anxiety or depression or PTSD. And then he will prescribe you a medication that you go to Walgreens, they fill and you take it on your counter, right? This is different. Uh, When you get prescribed this, you'll actually go to a ketamine clinic to do the ketamine. You'll go to an MDMA clinic to do the MDMA. And with MDMA, with ketamine, you have to be there two hours. With MDMA, you have to be there six to eight hours. So this experiential medicine this infrastructure does not exist. So what we're doing is partnering with, with well-qualified tenants and, and physicians and clinicians that have these you know, smaller practices, also legacy practices. And then we're helping them identify real estate, usually close to the VAs, because that's mm-hmm. where a lot of this treatment is going to be done through the TRICARE network. And then we are building them facilities and then leasing it back to them. So that's one of my biggest focuses right now. And that's called uh, healing commercial real estate. What is an MDMA clinic? Does it look like your regular doctor's office? Because I don't want to go sit in a waiting room with reruns of the Golden Girls, you know, on 
<laughs> while I've got this very powerful and wonderful drug coursing through my veins. Absolutely not. No, they're so different. When we get off this call, like, um, and if people, obviously people are listening, look up like New Shama in New York City. Mm-hmm. Very soft paintings, a lot of life, a lot of plants, mm. a lot of sometimes in the waiting room, like just like blues and velvets and calming, very calming. Right. Think of it more like a wellness you know, retreat that a woman would go to, to like have her nails done and have facials and like these, you know, it smells like, you know, incense and, and Mm -hmm. you're hitting all your senses that, that immediately disarm people, immediately disarm them and and feel, they feel calmer already. Cause that's the special sauce to a lot of this medicine work is when you take this medicine, it's going to show you things that you may not want to look at. So the key is to let let go of control and just and go with it which is so counterintuitive to what we're all used to doing so i've heard you on other podcasts talk about that when you initially went to the farm in denver you took a a pretty big dose and then there's maintenance after that absolutely yeah i mean like i said i've been man i've been pounding my brain since i was three or four alzheimer's runs in my family my grandmother Mm -hmm. passed away from it and, you know, I saw some early signs, obviously at 30, I was able to reverse those. Thank God. And I you were think, diagnosed as early onset dementia, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Mild, mild dementia. Yeah. At 30 something years at old. 30. Yeah. At wow. 30. And uh, is, this is what killed your friend at uh, yeah. 30 something years old. 34. Also. He had stage four CT. So like, I want to be really clear, Paul, like I know that I have CTE. I know right. it. There's no way that I don't, but mm-hmm. I am not going to die from it. I'm just not. I feel phenomenal. I've never felt better, right? And and I, it's not like I'm working out as hard. I, I work out a lot. Like that's one of my my tools, but definitely not as hard as as what I was doing every day on the ice. And then I continue to get better, which is why I continue to work with the medicine. And, and as soon as I see brain scans or blood work that tells me otherwise, then I'll stop. I've definitely found my tools. And so this constant repetitive use, there's a lot of studies out there where these doctors can't seem to, with the scales that we have, quantify that there's like, um, for sure, their microdosing works. And Mm. we don't really need them to. All that I know is on a big level dose to wake up the brain and the nervous system, I always recommend people do that first. And then for maintenance, um, there's always days off during, during the weeks this is a natural medicine. So you do build up a tolerance. So you want to take days off. You always assess how you feel like that morning. If you don't need it, you don't take it. But this chronic use is something that I've been doing, you know, for four and a half years now, every single year I take two months off. So usually one in and around like July, August, and then one in December. And yeah, it's, it's something that I, that I truly believe in for sure. What's a microdose feel like? Um, so you feel like you have a little bit more energy mm-hmm. and if you look at like a light or colors, if you walk outside, you might notice the sky and how beautiful it is, but you're not tripping your balls off or no, anything like that. Not at all. Music no. sounds a little better. Absolutely. Yeah. It heightens auditory acuity for sure. Uh, you're calmer. You're much more patient. You seem just more in tune and more sensitive to the things that are around you in a really good way. The way I describe it is it returns you to normalcy. Mm. This thing, man, this is not fucking normal. This is crazy what we're living in. 
He's holding up his iPhone. Oh my gosh, smartphone. Yeah. And we're just being inundated. My poor kids are going to school now, sitting in front of computer screens all day, mm-hmm. all freaking day. And so, you know, if you talk to mental health foundations, which I do a lot, I just met with one in Chicago, the kids that are suffering and attempting suicides, which a lot of them, a lot of them are, are describing how they feel using, using storm words, hurricane, you know, just, just like this, this overwhelming feeling of, of being not being able to to get out of however they're feeling what are, they feel attacked and it's a a big reason is because they can get to us now through our phones at any given time of the day sure it used to just be at during the news when you got home so you know i think being really conscious and the reason i bring this up is like this medicine helps you be like whoa wait a minute like i'm at my kids practice and i'm on my phone like put it down you know, just it gives you these little points of uh, pause. It's more about intentionality. Absolutely. Listen, man, I'm like, the number one thing that I want people to know is like, dude, I still go, I go to McDonald's sometimes, you know, and, <laughs> and I, I'll go have a Chick-fil-A sandwich for sure. And I'll swear and I'll raise, I'll, I'll raise my voice to my kids when maybe I shouldn't. I still make mistakes. I feel like with, with these medicines in this world, it's like this angelic form of, and it's not, you're still in the real world and it's still a lot of work to stay present, you know? All right. What kind of music do you like to listen to when you're microdosing? Led Zeppelin, favorite band. Uh, I like bands like the Black Keys. My Morning Jacket is amazing. Saw them two nights in a row at Red Rocks. Fantastic. Uh, Yeah. The Doors, Creedence, Clearwater Revival. Uh, A lot of big classic rock guy, Neil Young. Just depends on the day. Right on. All right, Daniel, thank you so much for your time. Where can our listeners find out more about you? So, uh, yeah, I'm on Instagram, Daniel Carcillo13. I'm on Twitter, Carbomb13. I am uh, on LinkedIn, just my name, Daniel Carcillo. Yeah, been getting pretty active on uh, doing some kind of more informational videos and stuff on my YouTube. So that's uh, at Daniel Carcillo. Cool. I will put links to those in the show notes. And I'm so grateful that you're feeling good about life and that we've still got you around and good luck with all you're working on. Howdy, buddy. Thank you, Paul. Thanks for having me, man. Thank you so much for Daniel for coming on to share his story. I forgot to mention in the intro that I wanted to say thank you to my friend, Peter Fish, who introduced me to Daniel. Peter, local guy here in Atlanta. Peter, let's play some golf, brother, before it gets too cold. Thank you for trusting me with your connection and your network. I don't know, guys. What do you think? I'm open to learning more about this kind of stuff. I'm not dying to introduce any more chemicals into my life. I think I've hit my quota, if you know what I mean. But, you know, if this helps people, if this helps people live a productive life, if it helps them be better, more stable human beings, then okay. I mean, I'm not an expert. And as I said in the intro, I neither endorse nor disapprove of his claims I keep an open mind. What I hear is that here's this guy who was going to drive his truck into a tree at 100 miles per hour. That was how he's going to kill himself, by the way. We didn't talk about it, but he had mentioned that separately. He was going to drive his truck into a tree at 100 miles per hour, and now he's a healthy human, a present dad and, and husband. I don't know. Who am I to judge? You know, We probably don't have as much data as we need to understand how and why these medicines work or whether they actually provide a a cure or a reliable treatment. 
And obviously, none of us should just go out and just start willy-nilly throwing powerful chemicals down our throat. But maybe it's worth asking, as Daniel suggests, well, why don't we have these studies? Is it possible that we don't have them because there's too much money being made in the current pharmaceutical treatments for depression and, and anxiety and things like that? I don't know. I'm not here condemning the industry. I'm just saying it's worth asking. And, you know, I wonder if psilocybin could help me with my gastric reflux or my lactose intolerance. I'm just saying I'd be open to it. Also, hey, you know, I found uh, what he said about athletes bringing happiness into a boring world interesting. Whenever I re-listen to an episode, there's always something in there. I'm like, I should have asked him more about that. Like, tell me more about that. But I think what he's saying is that sports for a lot of people are their deep passion. It's like their family, maybe their religion and their sports. And it's like, that's what they care about. And you see these videos of guys getting in fights at NFL games on Sundays. They're just drunk as all hell. And a buddy of mine, I shared one particularly violent one recently with a friend of mine. And my buddy replied, he's like, don't forget these people have jobs. They don't have careers. This is their life. Sunday is their one day they get to do something that they love passionately. And I guess that's an interesting perspective. I don't understand that point of view. And so it's worth thinking through what Daniel said, that athletes, sports bring happiness into a boring world. And I think that's cool. I'm sure that winning winning those Stanley Cups made the other teams miserable, though. Their fans miserable. So anyway... I'm very grateful to Daniel for spending the time on this chat. I've gotten to meet so many incredible people just because I have this podcast and we have some incredible people coming up next week as part of the Canada Fortnight on crazy money. I'll be sharing my interview that I already did this week with Rick Emmett, who is a songwriter, a singer, and best known as the guitarist for Triumph. He was also one of their vocalists. And the band Triumph, the the great Canada rock band from the 1980s, he's got a memoir coming out called Lay It on the Line. He talks about his life and times and his careers. We had a great conversation this week. He's a really smart dude. And revisiting his music from the 80s was a thrill for me. And I even found out more. It was reminded me how big they were in the 80s. And some of the concert footage I watched from 1983 was mind-blowing. We talked about the Us Festival in San Bernardino, California. Anyway, that's next week on Crazy Money. Until then, Mike Carano, make me sound smart.